I've been called Mr. Gold Coon in a a live live radio interview. (laughs) Wow, that's not good. I've been called Kaiser Cow. (laughs) I'm Kaiser Cow. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined by everyone's favorite sewer of sedition and subversion, the infamously inharmonious Jimmy, <laughs> a.k.a. Jeremy Goldborn, the man behind Danway.com. How are you, Jeremy? I'm very well. I think you had too much free time today. <laughs> no, never, never, never. We are also joined again this week by David Moser, who, as a jazz musician, works in both discord and gentle harmony and understands well the necessary interplay between the two. David is academic director of the CET program here in Beijing. Great to see you, man. Oh, I'm touched. (laughs) Today we are delighted to welcome Leita Hunk Fincher, a PhD candidate and, fingers crossed, a full-fledged doctor of philosophy at Tsinghua (laughs) University as of tomorrow. Yeah, actually it's sociology and I'm going to correct you this time. (laughs) (laughs) Doctor of philosophy. Oh, PhD. Right, right, right. right. In sociology, right. You're you're a doctor of philosophy in sociology at the prestigious Tsinghua University. Leda joins us for, I think, the third or fourth time. It's always an enormous pleasure to have you on the show. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you very much. Leda, of course, is the author of of the incredibly well-received book, Leftover Women, The Resurgence of Gender Inequality in China. Big shout out to, to, to Paul French, who has been just publishing some great books recently. Uh, yeah, actually, um, I want to just send a special thank you to Paul for approaching me to write this book. He, he's been just killing it recently. He's just putting out book after important book. Uh, and so, yeah, all, all mad props to him. Um, and, and, and reception has been really, really good. I've been reading pretty much, I mean, today there was an enormously complimentary review uh, by another big, um, somebody I'm a big, big, big fan of, uh, Julia Lovell, who is... In The Guardian, right? In the, in, right, right, in The Guardian. I think, what did she call it? What was she said, Leda Hong Fincher has written a shocking account of the way women are treated in the People's Republic, was the subtitle of the review. Well, it was yeah. uh, obviously uh, a book that, that, that we all highly recommend. So let's get we, straight into the kind of the meat of the book. Can you, I mean, can we do a, a kind of a soundbitey summary? What's the, the thesis of the book? Yeah, it's hard to reduce it to a soundbite. But um, Longer I basically than a soundbite. argue... <laughs> as long as you want. Right. I basically argue that women's rights and gains have really regressed over the past two decades or more of China's breakneck economic growth. And I focus particularly on this so-called leftover women campaign, which stigmatizes urban educated single women in their late 20s. Um, And I also focus on gender inequality in the real estate boom and gender and home buying and how that's created an unprecedented gender wealth gap. Right. We've talked about both of these things um, on the show in the past. And so uh, rather than recap exactly, I mean, to, to, you know, to rehash what we've talked about before, uh, I think Jeremy and I had some some, some uh, discussions about wh- where we would take this this time. So there's a couple of things that we want to talk to you about. I mean, at one point, I do want to talk to you about what it's like to be a graduate student uh, in China. Mm-hmm. I mean, as somebody who isn't a, non, uh, who isn't a native Chinese speaker. Uh, but 
also we want to talk about the international reception of the book. Uh, I think we want to talk about uh, maybe sort of comparative things. I, I kind of uh, saw, saw that you were in a, a very fascinating discussion on Twitter uh, that had been sparked by an interview, or I'm, I'm sorry, a review that had been written by a friend of ours, Pallavi Iyer, who's a, a former correspondent for the Hindu. She's now in Indonesia and sorely missed here in Beijing. Um, she's the author, of course, of Smoke and Mirrors, which I think uh, Jeremy has recommended before on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... Uh, sort of, because there's so much being talked about these days with respect to women in India, uh, there's so much uh, in the air, of course, about the the the, the general uh, global relationship between uh, the, the sexes in in you know after this whole hor- horrific killing in Isla Vista and, and all this, with the Twitter uh, hashtag campaign, yes, all women. Uh, so it, it, it's a really sort of timely topic to get you uh, to to talk about. Oh, the situation uh, in other parts of the world, and uh, Jeremy has just a, a whole bunch of other questions. I'm going to yeah. Well, let's start with that one. I mean, yeah, uh, let's, 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 yeah, sure. We'll start with that. You know, uh, so uh, Pallavi's review. I mean, she looks at she compares China to India, and she she notes how when she arrived in China, she felt liberated. Essentially, she felt as though women's position here was was much much better. How would you compare the situation of women in China? Um, to India and also to Korea and Japan. Yeah. Well, starting with India, first of all, I really loved Pallavi's article. I thought it was it was so nuanced. And, and I visited India a few times, and I absolutely love India. Um, and she's absolutely right that in many ways, Indian women, um, particularly rural women, are uh, far worse off than a lot of Chinese Women, But these are really complicated issues. They're very multifaceted. We're dealing with two gigantic countries with huge variations. So it depends on whether you're talking about the countryside, um, the cities, and there are huge variations within the countries. Um, And so it's a complicated issue. I don't think you can say necessarily i don't believe that you can make a blanket statement that women in india are worse off than women in china but that's kind of what what Pallavi says here i mean just read a couple of things that she she writes but there was one conclusion that appeared to need little qualification chinese women were an empowered lot they seemed to lay claim to public spaces in a way that was impossible in delhi they didn't walk hunched up avoiding eye contact with strangers they rode bicycles and wore hot pants sometimes they loitered aimlessly laughing up at the sun they were loud and sassy at zebra crossings people were herded across the road by women traffic cops i was handed change on crowded buses by women conductors and taken sightseeing by in taxis driven by women the neighborhood committee of the area i lived in was staffed by formidable matrons sporting chairman mao coiffures who could turn errant residents into stone with a glance. At the airport, men were frisked with business-like indifference by female security guards. In the years I spent traveling to and reporting from remote villages across China, I felt safe and free of judgment as I checked into hotel rooms and boarded trains. I was asked what I did for a profession and also about how much money I earned. <laughs> we all know that. Uh, but it was only the odd Indian I encountered who seemed to have any ontological objection to my existence in the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's pretty unequivocal. Yeah. Um, I, I understand that you don't want to, you know. No, I mean, no, no. Actually, I'm very happy to talk about it because, um, I mean, certainly on my trips to India, um, you know, getting on the subway, there are these all women ladies cars so that you can feel safer. 
Um, but, but I have to say, I was particularly struck by the incredible vibrancy of India's civil society and by the incredible rigor and passion of Indian feminists, feminist scholars, feminist activists. I attended two separate conferences in India. I also spent a month traveling through India. And um, these are things that are not quantifiable. So when you have these global gender equality rankings that often rank India way at the bottom and China is ranked way at the top, they're not including these unquantifiable factors such as political freedom in India. You know, they ha it's a real democracy. Women are voting and women are increasingly voting independently of the way their husbands are voting. Um, the feminists there that I met um, are largely urban, but not all of them. I met quite a few feminists who came from the countryside mm -hmm. and then they were actively you know, mobilizing. Uh, some of them had been raped in the past, but had got, undergone a real awakening. The, the vibrancy of those conversations is really lacking in China among um, the the women's rights groups here. Yeah, how how many female heads of state has China had since 1949? And since 47, China, India's already had two. Mm -hmm. Right. right. So, yeah. I mean, I certainly, and, and, right. And, right. I certainly don't mean to say, well, women in India are not doing as badly. Um, I mean, of course, there are tremendous problems, but um, but I want to point out that a lot of people in the world are not aware of the problems that women in China encounter because so much of it is hidden. And um, what I I mean, what I discovered with the real estate market is completely hidden. Yeah, that, that was that was absolutely I mean eye opening. I think for a lot of people. Yeah. So, and I might point out as well that the sex ratio imbalance in China is far worse even than in India. Sure. Yeah, I, I read that recently. And that, was, yeah. that was actually very surprising to me. It's something like 116 now to 100. It's in, more in than that. It's almost 118 boys born for every 100 And it's girls. only like 107 in... Uh, well, to, yeah, to 108 to 109 or 110 at most boys to every 100 girls in India. Okay. Well, I think in one of our previous discussions, we, we did talk about, uh, you know, women losing out in real estate because of, uh, of the, the things that you describe. But also in your book, I, I don't think we discussed was violence against women and domestic violence. How, how would you characterize the situation in China uh, yeah. at the moment? Um, it's horrifyingly bad. And um, it's far worse than the official statistics indicate. So officially... About a, because of reluctance to report. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's part of it, but I'm sure as well that the data is manipulated to some degree. What, what, what's your evidence for that? This is just what feminist activists who are studying the issue tell me. Uh -huh. So I wasn't specifically focusing on domestic violence. But the reason why I say it's horrifying is that um, in the course of doing my research on home buying and gender so many of the women that I interviewed had been abused by their husbands, and it came out slowly through a very, very long, hours-long conversation. Um, and then I also did separate interviews with feminist activists who are lobbying for a targeted legislation on domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, there are other studies on domestic violence showing you know, that the incidence is really far higher than one quarter of married women. 
So, uh, but what's particularly alarming to me about the situation of abused women in China is that because there is no law that specifically addresses domestic violence, when an abused woman actually tries to help herself, um, she calls the police. The police often come and say, well, this is family conflict. They don't have a basis to rule that somebody, usually the husband, has actually beaten the wife, even if she has physical injuries. And, and this is largely to do with the absence of a targeted law, according to the activists who are working on the issue. So um, there are women who file multiple police reports, and then they go to the hospital multiple times to document their injuries. And then, uh, first of all, there's, there's a huge stigma um, for women who speak out about having been beaten by their husbands. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's this notion that, you know, don't expose family ugliness. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very difficult for the woman to summon up the courage to actually report something like this. So there are multiple layers of obstacles. Later, so, maybe maybe yeah. you could just mention, uh, it's probably been talked to death maybe even on this podcast, but the the fact that the one woman who did come out was a foreigner, Kim Lee, the the, the wife, wife of Li the Yang. crazy English Li Yang. Maybe people the crazy Li Yang. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe you could just mention that yeah. because I know you've done writing about that. Yeah, well. yeah. Actually, I interviewed her in uh, my chapter on domestic violence in China, and she's the only woman who has really gone public about having been beaten by her husband. She put she's her photos a, on her Weibo she, account. Yeah, didn't she? she's yeah. an American. And um, she had been abused by him for quite a few years. But finally, the final straw came um, when he repeatedly bashed her head on the floor in front of their three-year-old daughter. Just unbelievable. And then she... asshole. I mean, just God. Yeah, it's crazy. But, But the thing is that rather, you know, rather than focusing... Yes, of course, he's a very bad man. But we need to look at the systemic problems that are facing all abused women in this country. And Kim Lee had this leverage as an American citizen who was very boldly speaking out about her own personal suffering. Um, But other women are way too frightened to do that. So even in her case, I mean, it's an incredibly long story, but in In the end, the Beijing court finally, after a long series of setbacks, finally issued a protection order that only lasted for, I believe, three months. Um, And then they uh, awarded her an amount, 50,000, for uh, her husband having committed domestic violence against her. And then also ordered him to give her some kind of financial settlement, but didn't say that he had to pay alimony. She's raising their three daughters. And he's been back in the public eye, basically saying she's just an American who hates China and, you know, I I did nothing wrong. um, It's it's really infuriating. Um, But I, I think, thank God for somebody like her, because she's really taken on this issue she's very public about it and somebody needs to take it on and 
Um, well, you're also an American who's taking on some of these very, very big issues quite publicly. What's the reaction been uh, among Chinese readers? Among uh, What's the reaction, for example, from the, the uh, All-China Federation of Women, which you, you, yeah. you really kind of single out uh, because... I, of, I do, and I have heard from various parties that they're not terribly happy about my criticizing them. <laughs> um, surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, and I know that, uh, for example, the UN Women has worked with the All-China Women's Federation, and UN Women actually mentioned to them that they have a serious image problem and that they need gender awareness training. And so... Um, Sometime around uh, when UN reached out to them and said that, they actually went and deleted a lot of the posts that they had put on their website, um, really incredibly insulting posts about the so-called Shengnu, urban educated single women. Do you, do you think that you can be credited? I think you can be. I mean, I, I feel like I have not heard that word again. Um, the words kind of disappeared from parlance. Oh, I, I from never seen it. Shen Yu. Shen Yu. It has not disappeared. I hear uh, it. I, I hear it almost not at all now. I mean, I, I feel like, I mean, it's certainly not coming from official channels. I think you're none hanging the, the out major, with the wrong people I, to I, hear I, that none word. None of the major media are talking about it anymore. Uh, Only, except, I, except as something, you know, uh, uh, to be sort of disparaged. I mean, it's something that's like... What time frame are you talking about? The last last week? Last six months. Last six months. (laughs) No, actually, I did a last check just before I sent my final manuscript Uh out to the publishers just to do, okay, what, you know, what has Xinhua News been saying lately about uh, leftover women, if anything? And I found that the the, uh, language had evolved in sophisticated ways. So... This was in November 2003, so I guess that was... 2013, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, 2013, about six months ago. Um, And they had added a new... First of all, they had the headline, eight types, something like eight types of leftover women, one look, and men all want to run away. And then... (laughs) They go through all the typical categories that you've seen over and over over the past the years. The overeducated woman. Right, but uh, they added two new categories. One was the divorced single mother, blaming the single mother for not going out and dating again because she's too devoted to her children and that she's just going to regret it in the end uh, because she's going against her natural biological womanly needs. The um, second category was American Tsinghua graduate students. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, uh, the second category, the second new category that I noticed was single female homeowners ah. who are deluding themselves, according to the language in Xinhua, deluding themselves into thinking that they are achieving economic security by buying a home on their own. Uh, but in fact, this is just going to make it even more difficult for them to find husbands. Um, and they, they actually mentioned that joke that there are three genders, men, women, and women with PhDs. So, oh, um, yeah, no, the, the term is still better. around. But is there, have you got any good news for us, you know, <laughs> um, in terms of either domestic violence or, you well, know, the economic disenfranchisement of women that, you know, is, is, is one of the 
yeah. major subjects of your book. Is, well, is anything going to the better? Something is going on now with um, the international, well, the UN women and other international groups are now in active discussions on draft legislation on a domestic violence law. And the, um, the diplomats and the UN agencies, the people working on this issue, say that the Chinese side is very active and interested. So they're actively discussing it with great interest. <laughs> but note that the legislation has still not passed, and they have been actively discussing it with great interest for quite a few years. But it's entirely possible that somebody just mentioned to me a couple of days ago that um, they're hoping that with next year, um, it's going to be the 25th anniversary of the UN Conference on Women. That was mm. 1995 in Beijing. That the Chinese may very well want to mark the occasion with the passage of a domestic violence law. So invite Hillary back. Yeah. Well, Hold it in again. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I don't know. But the thing is, I don't know if that. I, I mean, I tend to be much more skeptical about these things. Um, it hasn't been passed yet, but it's good that the Chinese are actively working on it. I mean, of course, there was also this gender discrimination lawsuit that was successfully settled. Mm. Uh, and that was somewhat of a milestone mm. where this young woman applying for a job. Um, I think it was a I can't remember exactly. I think it was a private tutoring company. Um, the company said, no, we're only accepting applications from men because they, we need them to do things like change the water dispenser. And so she sued them and she settled um, for, I can't remember how much money, but it did set a precedent. So that's progress. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Good Let's to move on to a kind of more meta topic uh, about your book. Um, I believe you're going to be publishing a Chinese language version of the book in China, in mainland China. Um, so I'd just like to ask about uh, you know that process. Uh, you know, are you going to be censored? Is my question. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, first of all. I don't know if it's going to be published yet, but there is a publisher. I'm not going to name it because um, I, it's not finished, but they are in the middle of translating it right now. They're extremely interested. Actually, quite a lot of mainland publishers have been interested in buying the rights to my book. That's so very encouraging. It, it's very encouraging, and I did have a very long dinner with the publisher and the translator, and I really, really liked both of them. And they said that because this topic, you know, leftover women, does not fall into the category of what they're given as a list of sensitive topics that need to be sent out for formal censorship, that they're optimistic that they can get it out pretty fast. That awesome. said, uh, you know, this is China, all sorts of things can happen. So I haven't seen the translation um, so I don't know yet, and we haven't. Uh, but it's encouraging that they're not sending it out to be officially censored. And 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 can I ask you a sort of a moral question in a way? Because there's been a bit of debate in the media recently about this exact topic, Evans' you know, book, and so forth. Yeah, right. you know, d d as an author, should you do you or not agree 
to censor mm. a little bit. Now, I mean, for I guess all of us, we've lived in China long enough where we've had to make compromises of one kind or another because we want oh, to no, stay no, here. No, no, not me. Not no, me. no, no, except for you, Kaiser. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I don't want to come off judgmental in any way at all about this case. But what would your approach be? Like if they say to you, okay, you know, we've got to chop out this chapter. We're going to leave out the How chapter feel on, on, right. on, on and, and, you know, what, what are the? At what point is it acceptable? It's, I think it's, I have to say up front that I would be willing to accept some cuts. Um, but it, again, it totally depends on what their suggestions are. My, I've thought about this. I really, really want this book to be published in the mainland. I mean, this is about young urban women and I want them to get this message. So if I can get the message across that, first of all, uh, that these women shouldn't feel that they have to marry just because they've reached a certain age. It's okay to be single. It's actually in some ways preferable to be single. There are, there are some women who've told me in China that, you know, they don't want to get married at all because the institution is so bad. So I want them to know, you know, if I can get that message across, you can choose an alternate path in life. You don't have to get married. Second of all, if I can get the message across that if women do get married and they do buy a home, they absolutely must put their name on the property that's deed. Right. That's, that's that the important thing, right? If is so critical, if I can get those two central messages across, I'm willing to accept a little bit of nipping and cutting here and there. I can totally get behind that. I think that's, 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 that's right. I mean... But it depends on what it is. I don't know. And well, you know, one thing that occurs to me is your thesis is not that simply this is a sociological, uh, you know, outflowing of, of some social currents, but it's actually a sort of, a, especially with the Shengnu uh, controversy, is actually a government-manufactured kind of top-down thing. And I think maybe I should mention this because of all the things I've heard about your book, even in just conversations with people, not in reviews, the one thing that is a sticking point or that some people raise is that um, in in pointing the finger at you know the media and the government, that there's a sense that you're that it's a conspiracy theory, and people balk at that. They say, "Well, this is a this, aren't all cultures are sexist? Why does this have to be a government conspiracy?" That's right. I mean, and that's I, what Polity actually had that criticism. Yeah. I mean, I'm she's... also reminded of the problems that Noam Chomsky had when he put out these books like Manufacturing Consent, and he was trying to prove that the media were all tools of of, of big business. But he didn't mean it in the sense that, that some people got together in a smoke-filled right. room. It's not, it doesn't work quite that way. And I, I think that even the Shengnu uh, campaign yeah. that you're talking about, I don't think you have the simplistic notion that like leaders are getting into, an, into a, a room and saying, let's put this propaganda message out. Right. So could you talk about how you think this top-down, bottom-up thing, you know, this, this message plays works? Out here, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, um, that, I think that is... The I mean, I, first of all, I'm delighted by the reviews. Overall, I'm really thrilled. Um, but there are quite a few people, particularly Chinese, uh -huh. who say, this is just a conspiracy theory. You know, mm -hmm. there's no way that the propaganda mm -hmm. department is actually pushing this systematically. This is a cultural phenomenon. Um, but, yeah. It doesn't have to be I, either or, not, or, does no, it? No, it's... No, I... I don't think that there is any um, plot behind closed doors. All I can say is that there's no doubt whatsoever 
that Xinhua News, the People's Daily, are constantly pushing this term. And and the themes are remarkably similar and they appear over and over and over again with very little variation. And we all know there's a propaganda department here. Mm. So right, I did but, I mean, but as you mm. say, I mean, this isn't the sort of thing that falls under the purview of the really super sensitive censorship apparatus. So this could very well be just somebody, you know, at a news desk thinking, oh, hey, this is an interesting social story. And let's Let's, let's write this. Yeah, I mean, why couldn't I, it be, I mean, I know why how it, it be works. both is what it, I'm oh, thinking. Oh, absolutely could yeah. I mean, be both. It's a lot of lazy absolutely. editors who say, oh, this is a story that's, yeah. uh, you know. Right. So they're just, they're just this cutting and pasting. They may be state absolutely. media, but they also need to sell copy, right? right? right. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's, it's multiple factors. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I have to say there was a very strict word limit on this book. So I had to be extremely concise yeah. and focused. And so I wanted to pinpoint this uh, the state media role in perpetuating this term because I strongly believe given uh, all the content analysis I've done of the the media reports that um, this is really heavily pushed by Xinhua News Mm -hmm. and it was certainly heavily pushed as well by the Women's Federation and and it's in conjunction with a number of other things like the Women's Federation organizing all of these mass matchmaking fairs that focus on that demographic of the single urban educated women, um, pushing them to get married. They're not focusing on women in the countryside who are uneducated. And then when I look at all the surveys that perpetuate these completely misleading myths about women and men in China, these surveys on love and marriage and home buying are always either funded um, by a state agency alone or a state agency together with a real estate developer Mm. or together with a matchmaking, online matchmaking company, or all three or or two. So so there is some collaboration going on there. But it it could be just sort of, you know, their sense that this is the zeitgeist, their sense that this is... I mean, I don't think it's so much sinister as it is just unenlightened. I mean, is that yeah, possible? I, uh, no, I, well, look, sinister is a very loaded term. I mean, I don't even okay. say that it's necessarily sinister, but it's certainly deliberate. And in, the fact is that the state's goals in population planning in encouraging the most educated women in the country to marry and have a child because they're considered high quality. <laughs> this is a publicly stated goal yep. by China State Council. Sure. So just, it just, just like it Singapore. Fits in with just, that. To, just to bolster what Leda is saying, because I've, I've worked in media enough to know that, that China is one place where the mass media actually tends to very often reflect the, the tastes and ideologies of a small group of people rather than just uh, sort of a mass, sure. uh, you know, the sampling. Yeah. And, uh, and very often the... Which yeah. explains the appalling state of the media because exactly. that small group of people have like Bad terrible taste. fucking taste. Wor- yeah. this, working this towards the CCTV <laughs> gala every year is so pathetic. Because <laughs> oh, it reflects it pretty the taste of this year. group of people. But I mean, I, I think... And with Peng Liyuan as the gomu, the, yeah. the, the first lady, it ain't going to get any better anyway. But I mean, you you know, when the when the head of, you know, the, uh, the public... Publication bureau or, or the head of a newspaper or something is a party member, and they're 
you know, it doesn't take much encouragement to say, yeah, this is a good story. Do more like this. And then you've got this unanimity that you wouldn't have in a true free market right. media. And unfortunately, there is an appalling dearth of information that would be empowering to women. Um, I mean, there are these, there are feminist groups in China, um, but they, you know, they're severely constrained. They don't have a lot of funding, so their message doesn't get out very well. Mm. So, um, but the, the state media, of course, cover the entire country, and then they're picked up by private media as well. Mm-hmm. Can we switch topics for a bit? We, we chat a little bit on, uh, on the internet before the show later about um, hostility against women with a strong public voice. And this is a topic I feel quite strongly about because uh, running Dunway back when it was a proper blog and it had comments, I realized that every time we published a contribution from a woman, the comments would get toxic. Um, and this is something – there's also been a little bit of writing about this in, in the American media over the last few months. Um, and I think you yourself have experienced some of that. What a surprise. Trolls are misogynistic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, yeah, But uh, it's, it's – yeah, it's okay. Trolls are misogynists. But and misogynists tend to be trolls. I mean, I f- Hate, right, but it's absolutely, but, uh, true, absolutely uh, true. Do you, I mean, you know, what do you feel about this? I mean, why does this? Why is it like this? Yeah. Are you getting trolled? Uh, oh yeah, I'm. I'm constantly trolled on Weibo. It's particularly bad oh, on God. Weibo. It's not so bad on Twitter, although I really I so. Say, it's it's yeah. just as bad here as in the anglophone world. Same. It, same. I would say it's actually worse oh. i think it's worse yeah no well because you're criticizing not just well, men you're I'm, criticizing china right? yes that's right. that's um, not i mean i've i've been attacked on twitter i've had to you know i've had a few rape threats on twitter I've had, but i can block people very easily but with weibo it's particularly coming from men there is just this level of extraordinary vitriol and there's such a deluge because there are so many people on Weibo that it's I can't just go through individually and say oh so and so said something really very offensive and and frightening so I'm going to block that individual it's just a deluge of messages so I can't it's very hard Um, but I also turned to Weibo first of all I used Weibo extensively in the initial parts of my research and so part of my, um, well, my desire, even now, even though my research is over on this topic, I still have a very strong desire to engage with the women who are really enthusiastic about what I have to say. By and large, they're women. Um, but that means that I have to actually kind of try to sift through incredibly hostile comments as well. And it can be very painful. Um, and of course, I don't have to go on Weibo, and sometimes I feel like it's just too overwhelming. I'm not going to go on. Yeah, God, but gonna... it is. I find it very. It's very bad on Weibo, and it's not just me saying this. Actually, one of the feminist activists I interviewed at the end of my book um, said when I asked her, "Well, you know, what do you think of social media and Weibo as a platform for social change in China?" And she said, forget about it with regard to women's rights. She said, Weibo is just a platform for scolding women. It's very patriarchal. Mm. Um, And so I would have to, by and large, agree with her on that. 
that wait that when you look at the feminist groups that are that are doing things that are meaningful in China, they're not primarily using Weibo to do that. Um, but of course, Weibo is still very important. I continue look to look at use the reaction it. to the Yes All Women campaign from mm. some you know quarters, the uglier quarters no, on Twitter. It's just, oh, it's just, of course. Yeah. Oh, God. yeah, I mean. I yes, I mean there is extraordinary misogyny and and very frightening stuff going on on Twitter. Um, I mean I've had a little bit of that on Twitter, but not so much. You had one very interesting review. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you if you came across this or not, but a, a certain um, German Peking University. Um, just I don't. Know. Not even. I don't even yeah, even yeah. I'd rather not talk about, about that. <laughs> it was but just I, so funny. Maybe we'll put a link up to it just because it's just a don't. Comment. Yeah, yeah. No, I. Uh, you've 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 said uh, Chinese feminists several times. That guy owes you an apology. That is all I have to say. That guy just <laughs> he owes a lot of people an apology for the drivel he unleashes on the world. I mean, <laughs> but I agree with later. It's not worth discussing. You're right. It's a, it's a midget. Hey, you know, I do want to move on though. I, it's, it's an interesting time. Okay. I, there's so I mean, so much I want to ask you about being a graduate student here. I mean, you're now at the very end of of a of how many years now? Four as, years. Four years as a PhD student at Tsinghua. Uh First of all, I I don't know how many uh, non Chinese nationals there are actually pursuing graduate degrees at Tsinghua. Is that is it the, common at now? the PH level? It's exceedingly rare. Uh-huh. Um, I'm certainly the only, the first and only American in the Department of Sociology mm-hmm. at Tsinghua, um, but it's still rare even in other departments for uh, particularly Europeans or Americans to do PhDs. Although there are, there have been more Japanese and South Koreans right. and Russians doing PhDs. The, the language level is all, you, I mean, there's the la- no, well, no one cuts you any slack with that. Uh, no, actually they did. Initially when I started my program, they said that I had to write my dissertation in Chinese and I was prepared to do that. But then fortunately about 18 months ago, um, I was told that actually they're going because I'm new. They're looking at their regulations. They want to attract more international students at the graduate level. They're going to let me write my dissertation in English. Oh wow! Thank goodness. Yeah. So, well, isn't the case that like forty percent of the courses in Tsinghua are now taught in English? Well, yeah. the, those are master's level courses. Oh. The PhD is very Chinese. So, in order to do a PhD now. You, you still have to have a really good Chinese. So even, yes, I was allowed to write my dissertation in English, but all the courses are in Chinese. A lot of the Chinese professors still ask you to write your papers in Chinese. So I wrote some of my papers in Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, all my research was in Chinese. And, uh, and then the defense. Um, there are multiple levels of defense you have to defend your proposal. There was a preliminary defense for my thesis mm-hmm. about six weeks ago. Then there's a final defense. There's a huge amount of which paperwork. Which is tomorrow. Which is <laughs> tomorrow. Um, there's a huge amount of paperwork. There's a huge amount of extra little bits of writing that I have to do in Chinese. And it's a very Chinese system. And um, what, what made you decide to do it at Tsinghua? It was basically by default because... Like so many other foreign journalists, I didn't get my visa from the Chinese foreign ministry. Uh, and we had already, um, my family had already 
moved here to Beijing. Um, I was a longtime journalist and I was working for Voice of America in Washington and they wanted me to do a second tour in Beijing as mm -hmm. the Beijing correspondent. So, um, and my husband was working at the time for Bloomberg and he got his visa and so we thought, okay, let's just move and I'll get my visa at some point. But probably I the last visa he'll get. <laughs> yes, probably. With a J in it. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but uh, it was really, yeah, that I was kind of not, I wasn't pushed into it. Basically, my mother, who's Chinese, and a scholar came to visit us, and I had been waiting for several months. I was just wondering what else I should do because it was looking rather bleak. And she said, why don't you do a PhD here? And at first I thought she was really crazy. And then I looked into it and I thought, you know, I think my Chinese is good enough. I think I can do this. And so it was kind of experimental. Um, but I got this very good uh, financial aid package from Tsinghua that covered all my costs and gave me housing and a stipend. And I thought, well, of course, I should just go for it and see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and it's been a real roller coaster and an incredibly valuable learning experience. And I'm very glad that it's coming to an end. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your peers in the sociology department, the other, the, the fellow graduate students, the sort of work that they're doing. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sure it's been really, really interesting to be able to bounce your ideas off of them. And um, Well... I have to say that actually it's a very, very stressful process. Uh -huh. And I think that most of my classmates who are doing PhDs are not really enjoying it very much. Well, well yeah, I, I've done, I've been there. I, I know what it's <laughs> uh, like. It's Yeah, horrible. but it's particularly unenjoyable as a Chinese person in the uh -huh. Chinese system because there are so many other requirements there are more political requirements. You have to take political class. There are a lot of meetings that you're required to attend. Um, and they can't say no. They can't opt out of this. Right. But I, uh, as your, an American, just, <laughs> I, um, I, did, I did after a while just feel that I, I didn't have to attend all of these meetings, that it wasn't absolutely <laughs> necessary, and I was shamelessly using my American status to just opt out of those requirements. So, um, yeah, but it's, it's very onerous. It's not fun doing a PhD in China. So, so what's next for you now that, I mean, what's, what's, uh, do, you, do you plan on looking for a job in academia? Are you gonna move, you're presumably going to move back with your family to Hong Kong now. And yeah, we actually already relocated to Hong Kong. Right. So I'm coming back here from time to time to finish my degree. Um, and I've been so busy, I haven't really launched a big job search. But I definitely will be looking for academic jobs, but I'm going to cast a wider net. So uh, headhunters. <laughs> um, <laughs> Alert. I, <laughs> I don't have a job know. lined up. <laughs> Well, you know, inquiries can write to Seneca at popupchinese.com and we'll forward it on to, on to Lena Hung Fincher. Hey, well, that, that was fabulous. Um, you know, we always end our, our show with, with recommendations of things that you've read. Uh, and as usual, we start with Jeremy this week. What, so do, you, what do you have for us? I'm going to recommend a blog, Ibis Bill's blog, it's called Ibis Bill. 
uh, .wordpress.com uh-huh. by a fellow named Michael Rank, who's uh, an f- internet friend of mine, and we've met uh, once, um, and he's contributed to Dunway in the past. Um, Ibis, like the bird. And yeah. Ibis bill. Okay. And uh, Michael is somebody who is interested in wildlife, uh, China, and North Korea, and has been coming to China since the 70s. So we have a lot of interest in common. And he recently had a post that I, I didn't even realize he had this blog, but Jeff Wasserstrom, also been a guest on this program, uh, tweeted about it, 1984 in Chinese, George Orwell in, in, in China and, and, and how he has been read. Um, so nice new blog, which sort of made me feel like a bit of nostalgia for the old days when blogs were still a thing before Facebook ruined everything. Oh, Facebook can be put to good uses. I, I, I've had there plenty was, of... There good. was a golden age of blogs. You have to admit. There, there, was, there, was, there, was, there was. There was. I kind of... What I like about Facebook is its ephemeral nature that, you know, you're, you're not going to have people shoving that you wrote on Facebook back in your face, you know, even a couple of months later. That's I wish Facebook servers would all just get bombed. Maybe if China would launch a nuclear strike on yeah. Facebook servers, I, I would I support know. that. I, I yeah. think. Kaiser's probably the only one who actually puts substantial content on Facebook and Quora. Yeah. You know, people, that's so... And, inter- into and he interacts with the unwashed masses yes, there, which I find even great. more amazing. You're a mensch, man. Oh, thank you. <laughs> let's let's leave, leave later for last. David, what do you have for us this week? Uh, recommending a, a woman. <laughs> <laughs> a woman? Uh, Just no, any I, old I, woman. I, no, I, I love this woman, Helen Gao. And she's got... she's. <laughs> no, no, I mean she's got a, she's got a great op-ed in the New York Times about her her generation. She's always writing about her own generation, right? So she has this great op-ed about how it's called Tenement Forgotten or something like that in the recent New York Times, right? And I don't know. I just like her. I think I think she's yeah. she writes very she writes very directly and simply and relating to her own, you know. And if you want to understand that her generation, she's the one to go to. Okay, later. What do you have for us? Well, I um, I have recommended some things in the past, but today I thought I would recommend a Chinese essay since I am finishing my Chinese PhD program, and it's actually by one of my professors, Guo Yuhua, at Tsinghua, and it's in English. It's called Collectivization of the Soul, and it's about the memories of women in this um, Shanbei village of rural collectivism. Northern Shanxi province. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I wrote down the, the title, I believe that in, in Chinese it's called Xinling the Ji Hua. And I believe it's also been translated into English. Um, but I, I've been thinking a lot about Tsinghua lately because I am hopefully about to graduate and um, I really was so moved by this professor's research. And, and it's, it's quite unique. It's a unique insight into the experiences of rural women in that era. And it's very moving. Xinning the Jihua. Excellent. Let's definitely check that one out. I'm going to make a, a kind of banal recommendation. I mean, I, I guess everyone in the world is reading Thomas Piketty. PKT? Yeah, it's like PKT. Well, if you're going to do it the French way, it's PKT. PKT. But, I, but I was everyone religious French. says PKT. Right. Yeah. right. But Although I hear he's not that appreciated in France, actually. Well, I, 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 I'm, I'm enjoying the book uh, quite a bit. It's actually, actually I mean, it's, it's better than my Econ 101 class, definitely. Uh, 
I uh, am am very excited because I pinged our friend Arthur Kruber and uh, asked him to come on and to discuss inequality, uh, wealth and income inequality in China in the context of PKT. Uh, and so we will be doing a show. So everyone, bone up. Uh, can we stick with Piketty? Piketty, Thomas Piketty. PKT. PKT. It's like the three letters. PKT. 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 Thomas Piketty. Yeah, man, maybe he can come and visit our groovy digs here at Jungle Moai. Well, he might very well because I hear that his book will probably be translated into Chinese. Yeah, it is going to be translated. I love the fact that that the right just are being driven crazy by this book. It's by a Frenchman. It, it alludes to Marx's Das Kapital, and it has uh, recommendations for a universal tax. Well, tax. <laughs> I love it. They Global hate that tax. book. Yeah. They want to strangle oh, him. <laughs> it's actually incredibly readable. I don't know. I mean, if if, if any of yeah. you have yeah, I've had a chance to read it myself. Yeah, it's yeah. really funny because you know he he makes a lot of references to literature. He he, yes, he looks right. at a lot of nineteenth century literature as. And and it makes an awful lot of sense to me yeah. to, to do that. I mean, to look at Dickens and. To, to but you are a bi-coastal liberal elite, drinking, sipping on your latte. So of course yeah. you would say that. Right, that's me. The east coast of China and the west coast <laughs> of the United States. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, exactly. Anyway, hey, uh, good luck tomorrow on your defense, later. Thank you very much. Yeah, and thanks for coming in. I mean, it's it's a real honor to have you in here, David. As usual, thanks. and we we're, we're gonna you know see you next time. Jeremy, all right, man. Keep keep the sedition coming. <laughs> Bonne nuit. All right, <laughs> and we'll see you folks next time on the Seneca Podcast. Take care. Mm-hmm.